Welcome to the Before the Stage podcast. This is a podcast where we go behind the scenes of the classical music industry to see what an artist's life is before the stage. All right, today I'm really excited to have on the show Nathan Chan. He's a content creator, professional cellist in the Seattle Symphony, um, the assistant principal. He's performed in multiple orchestras, like his whole life, his career. Um, yeah, so I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Thank you so much, Grace, for having me. I'm I'm excited to talk about music uh, for the next, uh, you know, what is it, half hour, hour or so? Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, I would love for you to kind of talk about, you know, your musical journey to start off the conversation. And then I have some specific questions for you in general. And yeah. Sure. So. sure. Well, my, my start in music uh, uh, happened quite young. Um, I was really fortunate to uh, have music kind of surrounded uh, as a, as a young, young child. My mother is a concert pianist. My father is a cardiologist, but he actually plays the violin uh, as an amateur as well. So growing up, we had lots of these wonderful uh, recordings and and sort of music videos, if you will, of these great uh, classical works. Um, We had wonderful laser discs, they were called. They're like giant DVDs of performances by the Berlin Phil, the New York Phil, Boston Symphony with, uh, you know, legends uh, that are conductors. So Lenny Bernstein, Seiji Ozawa, and Herbert von Karajan were sort of my first um, musical heroes, if you will, growing up. And as a small child, I would watch these performances on this big screen TV we had at home. And I was so drawn uh, to actually really specifically the role of a conductor. I thought there was something fascinating between how one moves their physical body uh, in relation to the sounds that I was hearing. And so I would actually go over to the kitchen, uh, grab a chopstick, come back to the TV (laughs) and conduct alongside uh, these wonderful masters of music. And so, um, you know, conducting was really my first foray into music. It was my first way of connecting with it as you know a child and you, you know can't really play music but you can really feel it with your body mm-hmm. yeah reading that in your bio is like oh my god <laughs> and then you got to <laughs> conduct some symphonies too like professional right. orchestras so. yeah i was really lucky enough that uh, one time we were going to a concert and it just so happened that the uh then assistant uh, conductor of the san francisco opera her name is Sarah Job, and she was sitting a couple rows behind me. And I was maybe two or three at the time, and I was conducting in my chair, in my my little seat in the audience. And she noticed that, and she thought, you know, that's not normal. So she introduced <laughs> herself to my parents, and she sort of became my conducting mentor, and she uh, sort of um, helped uh, give me my first musical opportunity which was conducting a set of Mozart variations uh, and then later on uh, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Oh my goodness. Wow. That is that is such a unique start to like your musical life. I think I saw there was one video out there of like a real small kid like who was conducting something. Yes. Yes. I've seen You've that. seen that? It's That's like an amazing video. Yeah. I don't know. I think it's something that um, and that music moves kids and there should be more encouragement of that for sure. But also having the opportunity to, <laughs> could they see you? How did they see you? <laughs> this is unrelated. That's a wonderful question. I must've been moving a lot, maybe too much, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, but it, yeah. it's, an, it's an interesting point that you bring up, you know, um, and I think it, it basically, uh, calls to attention the presence of of music in all of us, even in a, in a very small, from a very small age, in some way, music has an ability to resonate with um, human beings. I think it's a universal trait in, in that sense. Yeah, no, for sure. So that's such a cool start. So from there, you ended up studying cello. 
Yes. So uh, in particular, that Beethoven 5 uh, recording with the Berlin Phil that I found very fascinating. Uh, there's a section in Beethoven's Fifth Symphony where the double basses play these long notes all together. And it's, you know, it's so earthy. It's so guttural. And something about the low sounds of those double mm. basses were really intriguing and fascinating. So I actually really wanted to play the double bass at first. Oh. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I, I, I was a small kid and I, I still am a very, you know, pretty small person. So my parents were like, no, 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 we better take it down a notch. And so we settled on the cello. So I started playing cello at like age five because of that reason. Moving the double bass around is, is it tends to be a struggle, I know, for a lot of people. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm actually helping a friend. Uh, we're flying out to Vermont this Sunday, and um, he, he enlisted my help. Uh, he, he's bringing two double basses on a plane. I already have so much trouble bringing my cello on a plane. I'm very interested to see what the journey is like for a double bassist on, you know, modern day air airlines. So it, it's going to be a little uh, window into what if, you know, in a parallel universe, I played the double bass instead of the cello. <laughs> You're like, well, how is this going to, I see, did you say two double basses? Yes. I think he's going to bring like a, a oh traditional my. double bass and he's probably going to bring like a solo bass, which is a little bit smaller, but of course still huge. And I think he has two travel cases for it. I have no idea what it's like you just put a bunch of fragile stickers on there i have no idea i i i'd be scared to death to bring a double bass on a plane yeah i i would be too yeah <laughs> thank goodness i play the violin yes. <laughs> this one. can you actually i had fun um asking this to um timothy actually about traveling with a violin can you do you have any tips for traveling with your cello oh yes uh lots of lots of tips well first of all you we, we have to operate under certain guidelines when you fly, fly with the cello. Uh, sort of the main one being that the cello must be in the window seat uh, for, you know, um, evacuation purposes. You don't want to trap yeah. somebody in with, their, with the cello. Um, so whenever you purchase a ticket for a cello on a plane, you always put it in the window seat. And there's sort of a universal airline code that you can use. Uh, at least I, I like to use it. And it seems to help people wrap their head around what this thing is. And it's uh, the universal air, air uh, code for this is CBBG, which stands for pa a cabin baggage. So I, I usually name my cello CBBG Cello Chan. And uh, so that's sort of on the itinerary and you put it in the window seat. Unfortunately, that means typically, typically you're always in the middle seat. You get mm. stuck in the middle. Um, uh, you just, you know, try and get to the airport slightly early just in case, uh, you know, run into any troubles. Usually it's been okay. Um, definitely you want to try and get boarded uh, sooner because it takes a little bit of time to get in there. Um, oh, there's so many things I can talk about. I'm getting so <laughs> excited. Uh, you have to ask for a seatbelt extender oh. uh, on the plane so that you can, uh, sort of latch in the cello through the latches. If there's a, you know, a C shape hook, you run the seatbelt with the seatbelt extender in there. Uh, I've seen some people put their cellos upside down so that when the person in front leans their chair back it doesn't uh put it back but uh i'm not too comfortable putting my cello upside down yet so i i'm still figuring that out uh, one other little travel hack i can give is you know the armrests how the middle ones typically go up and down oh, but yeah. the one in the aisle does not so when you're leaving the plane that can be a bit of a nuisance when you're trying to get the cello out there's actually a secret button underneath the armrest of the aisle seat, which is located right at the intersection where the armrest and the sort of the, the the perpendicular thing, there's a button right there. And if you press that, it allows you to lift that oh. armrest up so it's easier to get in and out. A lot of people don't know that. So those are sort of my big tips for traveling with the cello. 
I mean, I think I'm going to look for that button next time I want to play. Yeah. <laughs> Just, Just be like, for getting out regularly, I would use it too. It's so much more comfortable. Yeah. I'm going to look for that. Be like, I found a plane hack. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Nathan. <laughs> that's great. Um, yes. Yeah. No, I thought that's a really interesting question to ask um, those musicians that travel a lot because that's something I know a lot of us are scared about doing is traveling with our instruments and those that, that are professional and just do it all the time. You guys know how to like go through the, the route of doing it. So. Sure, yeah. There's, I feel like every instrument is a little different. You should compile like a little, a little list or like a little, uh, just a, a, a page on your website, tips and tricks according to instrument. That would be cool. Yeah, I need to start asking every single music. I mean, pianists, they're the ones that get oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so just be like, don't forget your music if you need it. You know? That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's, that's probably they're like, don't forget your iPad or something. <laughs> yeah, lucky, lucky them. They don't have to think about this. <laughs> yes, that's so true. So kind of like, um, through your career and you are now working in the Seattle symphony and all of that. Is there traveling you guys do as a symphony quite often? I mean, probably not during COVID, but. Definitely uh, COVID has put a, a, um, a bit of a pause on travel, but a lot of orchestras go on tour and we were actually scheduled to go on a tour to China during oh, wow. COVID, unfortunately. So that was postponed, but um, traveling with an orchestra is a very interesting ordeal. A uh, lot of lot of logistics involved. Um, thankfully, they make it so that it's it's quite easy for the musicians when one goes on tour. Probably my favorite part is you can ignore all those tips that I just gave because typically <laughs> all the bigger, larger instruments travel together in a, a special, you know, sort of crate that they'll put on a cargo plane that's you know really taken care of well. Um, so. Typically, let's say you're going on tour in about a week or so, like four or five days before, maybe even longer, you'd pack your cellos into these cello crates and, um, you know, the wonderful uh, managers of of all that will take it and the cello will actually meet you at the concert hall of the first destination, the first rehearsal that you're going to in, in a new city. So it's awesome. Uh, they yeah. even will take your concert clothes. They have like little closet trunks and you just put that in there. And so really all you have to be responsible for is as if you're going on vacation without your instrument. So it's a, a wonderful privilege. And then right after a concert, you're going out to the next city, you put it back in the trunks and right away they ship it off to the next place. So it's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, all of us musicians who travel, you're like, you know, you pack everything and then you're like, oh yeah, I have my instrument. Oh man. Yeah, I <laughs> like, and I have to carry that through the airport and all of this. <laughs> yep, yep, yep. It's it's definitely, definitely interesting, but. It, it is, yeah. yeah. I guess I have a question, like on your journey to getting a job professionally in an orchestra, what were things that you had to, you know, prepare for in the audition process, you got it really fast after you finished school, right? In Juilliard, and then you got this job. So we were talking about previously before we even started this interview about mindset and like the mental side of playing an instrument professionally. And I was wondering if you could kind of go into that with your journey, <laughs> even now stuff you might work through as a principal player. So sure, sure. That's a wonderful question, Grace. Um, I think so much of playing an instrument is is sort of mental rigidity and perseverance, perseverance, and sort of steadfastness, um, especially so in any sort of audition process. I started my uh, journey preparing for auditions in the middle of my uh, getting my master's degree when I had a very serious talk with my teacher Richard Aaron about sort of what were next steps along my musical career and sort yeah. of the reason why that all started is I was um, pretty adamant that I didn't want to go and do more schooling. I sort of wanted to, you know, get started as a and, and, and try to make it as a professional musician. And so he he gave me some some very good uh, pieces of 
advice and you said, you know, you should start looking at some orchestral excerpts because the process of preparing uh, excerpts it takes a long time to really sink deep into your into your bones. And so I sort of began uh, preparing very rigorously at that point. I think at a certain point, you know, of course, that's a huge task in and of itself. But another unexpected challenge along the journey was, you know, dealing with rejection uh, along the audition process, which is, you know, something we as musicians have to, you know, it's a part of the deal, if you will. And it can be definitely very disappointing to get close uh, uh, to almost winning things and, you know, just falling a couple uh, steps short. What I learned in that process is that one needs to be prepared to such a state where you have the confidence that the reason why you didn't make it to the next step of that journey is was not ultimately your fault. And that only comes when you prepare in such a way where you're feeling very good about where you are in terms of the way you're playing. Looking back at it now, I think that taught me so much just dealing with that sort of process, that that very natural process of feeling very down and dejected right after not winning an audition. Allowing that to happen, uh, you know, the first time it happens, it's, 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 it's a very, you know, um, humbling event, but yet knowing that there will be more opportunities in the future and using those events as, you know, well, just got to pick myself up and try again for the next one. Because as long as you're, you know, consistently in the running, it's, 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 it's just a matter of time. And I think that's something that, uh, we all as musicians, um, uh, can sort of take solace in, in is that you know your uh, your time will come in, in in that sense where uh, the worst thing you can do is to not try anymore. You just have to keep yourself in the in the game in the you know in it, if you will. It, it's an interesting. It's hard hard to explain. But. Yeah, is it like I guess trying to explain this to others, like keeping yourself in that mental space of like the preparation process. And do you think yes. it's like a different, like I know with um, super high level sports, they talk about this all the time, like kind of like the flow or the like zone or something. So it's kind of like when we do auditions, it's probably really similar to getting to this high level of focus and learning to get there over and over and over again and to eventually hopefully control it which takes a lot of mental work. Absolutely. I love the way you just described that because I think as you do more and more of it, you understand the natural way your body rises to that uh, highest level, highest state of preparedness. Yeah. And learning how to time that and pace that in preparation for events is incredibly useful and it, I think ultimately it's a huge factor in, you know, overall just preparation for things, you know, even beyond auditions. Whenever I have a big thing coming up, just the way you understand how your your body ramps up to that highest level is very interesting. And, you know, for me, um, realizing that, you know, it's it's a it's quite a privilege to have lots of time to prepare for things so that when you do have that time it's important to really understand how you're going to map out that process so that you know in the future when you have less time and that ramp needs to be accelerated you're still following a similar curve albeit compressed i think mm. we all go through a natural kind of ramp up it's just understanding how long that takes uh, for yourself is incredibly important. I totally agree. Like, I, I think one practical way, because I think sometimes when we talk about these things, it can be like, wait, but then what's my ramp up? You know, <laughs> and like, like a practical way I started identifying was like, oh, I need this amount of time to even just know a piece of music. And then 
when I know it, then it's like, then I'm into the next level. So for, there was at one point I was five hours or something on like a certain amount of pages. You know? Whoa. So I like, I got it. I was like, okay, by this point I feel real comfortable. But then I was like, okay, now I have to get those five hours that, you know, but then it starts getting faster and faster too. Cause you, it's like, actually now I'm going to be a little nerdy Yes. <laughs> on business stuff. It's like learning a system. <gasps> Whoa. It is a system, isn't it? Yeah. It's a workflow. If you had to describe it in business with your business knowledge, can you, how would you do it? I'm very, I mean, it, it literally is like a, a, like a workflow, like what you just said. So it's learning, like, what is the beginning process, you know, for like, okay, you have to learn a piece of music. And then how long does that take you to learn a piece of music? What are the steps you have to do to learn a piece of music, which as string players, we know it's rhythms, notes, bowings pitches <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and like that whole like learning really well learning like maybe even the bowing strokes the articulations the left hand actions that are going to be involved really breaking it down like breaking it down to the bare bones and then musical sides that support all those actions because you know you can do actions and whatever <laughs> it can be real clean but then it's gonna could be real boring <laughs> right right so. i think that i i love what I love about that is that everything is rooted in a technical foundation. Mm-hmm. And that was actually sort of something I struggled with greatly for a majority of my career is I would always, you know, do the musical ideas first without having them being rooted in a strong technical foundation. And that led to a lot of problems as the pieces got harder. You know, when I was growing up at a certain age, that works for for a little while. But, you know, going into college, I'm really understanding how to build that, just as you're saying, you know, notes, um, the way you're, you're changing hand position so you're really in the right place at all times, figuring out the Boeings. When you free yourself to not being able to think about those things, then your musical ideas come across so much clearer. When you're trying to achieve a musical thing, but you're not able to support it with technique, it can lead to a lot of problems. So I'm so glad that uh, your system and workflow sounds similar to mine. I think people, yeah, people should develop a really strong workflow and system. I think in, you know, uh, probably... Man, I think I'm, I have to think about it when I explain this in the future because that's a really wonderful way of describing sort of the biggest change for me that happened in college is figuring out a workflow, figuring out a system. And, you know, they always say that the role of a teacher is to teach someone how to teach themselves. And another way to say it is you're teaching someone their workflow or system. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like that. That's re- that makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, it does. It does to me too. And I, I agree with you, like on the technical side, like that's been something I've taken that time to really step back and be like, <laughs> I can, I can play something musical, but you know, it can be a struggle, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> a real long struggle. And then I can't consistently reproduce it because I don't know the technical side that I need to support that idea. Um, we're just being real musicians right now. <laughs> yes. But, but it's like, this is something that happens so much before we perform and stuff is knowing how we could repeat a musical idea over and over, but like, it might feel different to us and to the audience because of like the environment, the situation, but we still need like a way to get there over and over, but it still can, it will change. Cause that's the one beautiful thing about music. Yes. And the lovely thing about what you described is I think it's okay to have different musical ideas uh, when you're performing. Uh, The spontaneity is what makes music, you know, human and real and organic. Um, And, you know, you want to be able to have the freedom to change things on the fly without sacrificing, you know, things like precision and accuracy and, you know, tone and everything. Uh, so I, I like that. Yeah. No, it's been a huge learning process for me to get figure out my system. <laughs> let's talk about, let's, what is your system? What is Well, I system? guess we just talked about it. But. I mean, I'm working on, but that's pretty much like the basis and like yeah. finding a way that, you know, is really clear. And as you were talking about, like finding those 
like tools um, to give like to your students. Mm-hmm. That's something I've you know, like technical things to be like, how do I feel good about this one technique? You know, finding those tools to feel good about that technique. So then when you go to the piece, you're like, okay, you know how this goes. Yes, exactly. It's been a big learning process this last year. <laughs> like, good. Do you have any way, like, kind of like ways that you, if you've taken a break or, I mean, do you take breaks? Oh, yeah. TikTok is my greatest breaks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, social media. Uh, <laughs> If you don't follow Nathan on social media, you should because he's oh. he's everywhere and he is a great content creator out there in the classical music space. So follow Thank him. you, Grace. <laughs> Thank you. And kind of like getting into, you know, back into playing and stuff like that. Is there a system or way that you relate to find certain techniques that helps you? Absolutely. Um, there's different systems for everything. Um, some of the most basic systems that I I would say my cello playing needs to have a strong foundation of is um, hand shape, hand positioning. Um, I have a very good friend, uh, Zlatomir Fung, and the way he describes it is really fascinating to me. All intonation is, is all problems rooted in intonation can be described in two ways. One is the distance between your fingers is inaccurate. Or when you're shifting, the amount your hand is moving is inaccurate. So as long as you the distancing between your fingers is accurate and the amount you move you're moving between positions is accurate, then your intonation will be, you know, much better. And so in order to practice having great hand positioning, of course, scales are so important, incredibly important. Um uh, I love doing thirds and sixths uh, to really feel the distance between intervals, you know, feeling how they s- change ever so slightly as you go up because, you know, as as you go higher and higher, the distances get smaller and smaller. Um, knowing that relationship is incredibly important. That's, that's a very good system to perfect. Um, uh, another big system that I think about is arm angles across Mm. different strings Uh, a lot of string crossing problems can be sort of traced back to the way your arm angle is in relationship to the string you're playing and if the way you're pivoting between strings is efficient you don't want to use big muscles for you know rapid changes Um, sort of understanding how things go from small to big as you move up the arm and uh you know using those uh using that concept to its maximum um in terms of you know the biggest sound comes from the biggest muscles and then all the you know virtuosic sort of uh fine motor skills happen in the fingers um making sure you're not mixing those two components up when you're playing uh, is a huge uh, factor in sort of uh, efficient and and, and beautiful uh, right arm technique, I think. Um, I mean, there's so many things to talk about, but I would, I would say those are like so two of the biggest for me. You know, yeah. there's your left hand, there's your right hand. When those things are, are feeling like they're in the flow, it, uh, it solves a lot of a lot of problems. Yeah, it really does. I like how you brought up, um, you know, finding like those angles and like the bigger muscles to the smaller muscles. Um, That's something that, I mean, taking ownership of like what techniques, you know, we use to use those smaller muscles and bigger muscles. And when do we need to like learning to feel that in our own bodies is really important. And I Mm -hmm. definitely have been studying a lot about that this year. So, Oh, good. Yes, it's so important. So you don't play your scales and you aren't <laughs> thinking about like, these things. Go take that into your practice. It, it will change a lot yes. of your playing. And then I would say, I want to add, I just thought of one more thing. I th- would say the third one, maybe the three pillars that I think about. The th- last pillar would be um, the way one uses your ear to mm. be extremely sensitive uh to things like pitch, but probably the thing I've been thinking about more these days is uh, 
tone production, uh, finding when a sound is sizzling and ringing and really open and listening to overtones and your ear is your gateway to your music. And if you can learn how to be as, you know, perfectionist as possible with your ear, uh, that's really going to be the, the thing that uh, pushes you to the next level is your relationship to what you're hearing and your desires in your brain. I think that's incredibly important. It really, yeah, that is a profound thing because I I think we easily listen to our pitches a lot of times <laughs> which is important yes. our intonation and but listening to that tone or what you want to hear in the phrase and mm-hmm. even articulations and like the different you know sections you know opening your ears to those points can profoundly change so much yes and then your teacher's like, hey, you're, you're up on down bows at a little, you know, <laughs> I can hear right. them, you know, then you're like, oh. <laughs> right. And recording oneself is, is such an important pro- uh, part of, you know, honing your ear because like we're thinking about our left and right arms and, you know, we're trying to listen as best we can. But sometimes it's so important to just, just listen to yourself because that's when you really expose all the little details and it can be very humbling and also sad. <laughs> yeah. And speaking of which, you've recorded yourself quite a bit, um, right? And like you have Spotify, you have, you know, YouTube, all of the above. <laughs> yes, and then, yes. I mean, going back to like the mental side of, you know, audition preparation and, you know, getting into that kind of, can you talk about those two sides of recording, like recording for, you know, content creation and then recording mm. for auditions preparation? That's a very good question. Um, I think in general, recording is a very, um, it really brings out the perfectionist in you. Uh, Maybe one symptom of our modern day era of recording is we're so used to listening to such pristine, uh, beautifully uh, produced and you know, just really, I mean, sort of diving deeper into music production when you hear someone who's listening to uh, your modern day, say, pop song, the amount of uh, detail and, uh, you know, a diminishing degrees of returns in terms of improving it little by little by little it's so fascinating to me. Um, and I, you know, it's something I try to bring a little bit into the classical world. It's, it's very difficult. Um, not only being both the performer for your recording, but also, you know, you know, listening to it on a computer and with, you know, as, as best an audio equipment you can, you can, you know, get your hands on and really trying to achieve perfection in that way. Um, it's a very humbling thing. Uh, but it also, um, it's a little bit, uh, interesting, maybe even a little bit scary, I would say to see, uh, just how much nowadays can be done on a computer. Um, you know, I always try and warm up the sound a little bit you know, make sure the levels are great when I'm creating content for, you know, say social media. Cause I, I think audio tells such an important part of the story. Um, it, it, you know, it piques your interest when, when you see a piece of content and you hear the difference between something that's like, you know, really nicely done versus, you know, straight out of the phone, I guess, uh, to answer your question, things done in content creation, I definitely do as best as, as I can on the performing side, but I also, you know, I enjoy the process of working on the audio on the computer mm-hmm. to really, I would say, achieve a a sort of f- fantastical um, image of perfection uh, as I can. But of course, when you're recording for auditions, you take a lot more time and focus in your actual playing and the way you do it because you you don't you don't want to touch it too much on the computer, and so it's interesting to jump between those two worlds 
you know, say recording a pop cover versus recording a classical piece. And I actually really enjoy that process of, 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 of discovering the differences uh, between those two. Um, and I think that's why it's um, important for uh, classical musicians to really listen to all types of music because then your ear really becomes attuned to really what what is expected in a modern day recording um, and you know see if there's any way to sort of bridge the worlds between classical recording and like say pop style recording I think there's room for that that those worlds to meet a little bit more in the middle yeah no, I think you bring up a great point and also as in classical musicians, like it teaches us just so much when we step outside of our classical world and like record ourselves on the other side. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm. sometimes it can be freeing because we'll be like, oh, like recording is not auditioning or, you know, it's not this like really perfectionist you know, gotta make sure Don Juan is great for, you know. Oh boy. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or even like, you know, when we take one take auditions, that's so different than like sitting in a studio and doing a few takes on something. I mean, it's, it's a whole different like mindset side of it too. (laughs) Right, 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 right. It's interesting. Yeah. One thing I've been exploring in terms of when I record for pop is the incorporation of, you know, when you're recording for like pop, uh, pop songs, one of the sounds that I love exploring is just playing extremely quietly. Something that I would never do in a live, you know, in a live uh, context, because, you know, we've been taught that we have to project and we have to reach the back of the hall, and you know, yeah, but there's something really lovely about putting a mic real close to the cello and like playing way up on the fingerboard, but just getting so much um, airy, delicate, intimate type sound, and then allowing the mic to pick up all that detail so you don't have to worry about you know being able to hear. And that's been a really interesting color to explore. Uh, I don't know. It's just a, a little yeah. tangent, but it's, it's interesting. <laughs> No, and it's possible with recording. Well, like if you're in a hall, they'd be like, "What are you? What are you doing?" They'd be like, <laughs> "I can't hear you." <laughs> yeah. Like, well, that didn't work, you know. Yeah. It's a different style of playing for sure. Definitely, definitely. I love it. It's it can be quite freeing. It can be quite freeing where you're less stressed about the technical difficulty of the notes, and you're really just about the delivery. I think that's something that a lot of pop singers think about when they're recording for their songs is like the delivery, the the character, the emotion, um, what's going to make your sound unique. And I think uh, that's something we should think about as classical musicians a lot because we're so focused on perfection and clean. And uh, sometimes we lose sight of that originality and individualism. Or like you just blend into the orchestra and you're like, okay. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Which you probably relate now. Yes, it's true. Definitely playing an orchestra has taught me uh, that there are different types of sounds possible. And the way I describe what it what what's required in orchestra is you really need to get rid of your entire ego when you're in orchestra and really focus on everything in a group. Um, there's something very humbling and very uh, satisfying when you do that to contribute to this larger mass and you know it's fun to do that but you know it's also fun to you know be more individualistic too so it, as long as you can do both I think it's it's good do you find that um from all of like the different genres different styles you've played in in your career um that this has made you a better player overall like switching between everything I hope so um <laughs> I think definitely when you do, you know, uh, when you when when you're playing in symphony quite a while, it's easy to get into that zone where you're really blending all the time, and then it takes a beat or two to say, "Oh wait, I need to be," you know, you know, when I play chamber music, I really need to be more soloistic in that sense. One of the things that I've been having trouble with 
in particular, if I'm going to be completely transparent in, in that, in that sort of making that switch is one habit I've been falling into. And it's so frustrating is in terms of the rhythm, when you're playing an orchestra, if someone gives you a downbeat, you don't really, you don't really play right when they're playing. You, you sort of just place it a little bit later because in an orchestra, you're sort of waiting a little bit to be in the sound versus start the sound, if you will. And, you know, that's a very good skill to have or else you always sound like you're early in orchestra. But in chamber music, I've noticed, you know, listening, listening back to a couple of recordings where I, I was playing, I was, I was a little bit consistently late to the beat. <laughs> and I, that was so frustrating to me. And just, you, you know, reminding myself, you, you know, just going back to the metronome and really playing on the beat. That 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 was a little bit difficult, so I'm I'm trying to get rid of that habit. <laughs> no, that's a good point to bring up because I remember when I, you know, in school, like when I was going back and forth a lot, I was like, "Why am I having so much trouble?" <laughs> the timing is totally different. I'm glad that you bring that up as a professional. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Is there anything else that you've really discovered by playing, you know, professionally in orchestra that has translated differently over into other places? Definitely the amount of repertoire one needs to prepare an orchestra can feel very, very overwhelming. Uh, you know, you're learning three, four new pieces a week. Um, definitely my uh, efficiency in getting to an okay state <laughs> of preparedness has changed drastically with orchestra. Um, Sometimes I feel a little bit uh, regretful in terms of how quickly one has to prepare that music. In an ideal world, I would love for um, an orchestra to be able to focus on, you know, a certain program for an entire month. Because sometimes what I don't like about that is in order to sort of survive in that schedule, you, you work intensely for that piece. And as soon as it's over, you sort of dump it from your brain because you got to work on go on to the next and in some way I feel the 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 depth of understanding a piece it's not as uh, it's not as great as I would like it to be uh, uh, you know like working on a piece of chamber music for um, months you really know all the parts of of everything so I think um that's been a very humbling thing to try and navigate uh, is the just the sheer volume of repertoire and balancing that with a, a deeper understanding of the piece. It's, it's something I'm still struggling with. Yeah, I'm glad that you brought that up because I, I mean, in school, we even get sometimes we get a little bit of a longer season to work on music. But I think right. the only thing that really relates to a professional like career is when you go to a festival, which might even be faster. I don't know, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but it's the only thing that's like kind of um, simulates that career style of like, here's the music, learn it now, see you next week, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it's very quick turnaround, yeah. Yeah, which just means how incredible, I mean, after a while you start repeating repertoire, which I'm certain happens after a season. <laughs> Right, right, right. You know. Definitely returning to music. It's like, then you start getting that deeper insight uh, into a piece because you're not focusing on, oh, gosh, what, is, <laughs> what am I supposed to play? But you can focus a little bit more on, you know, the bigger picture and like, uh, you're less stressed about that. So that's a very good point. I think people, I mean, we always idolize these careers <laughs> to be in a symphony or something like is like, you know, it's such a beautiful thing. But then we realize how intense it is to get in and then to be in it. <laughs> it's like quite, it's, it's quite a full time job. <laughs> so. It's interesting. It's nothing quite like it. I was, I was, uh, I had a funny, I'm a big baseball fan. Uh, I it's the sport I follow the most. I I grew up playing little league, and I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area, so I went to Giants games all the time. And now, uh, seeing a baseball season schedule and a symphony schedule, I think they're probably the most alike because a baseball player plays maybe, at, you know, 
four or five games a week, you know, consistently, like every day, basically, and then maybe a day or two of travel and rest. And uh, that that consistency and uh, is 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 quite interesting, I think, because an orchestra now plays well, an orchestra plays, you know, three, four times a week. Although I have a feeling that might change now with the pandemic. I feel like maybe orchestras are going to shift to having less concerts a week. Um, but it's interesting to see the parallels between a baseball a baseball player and an orchestral player. I think it's interesting. That's a, that's a good comparison. I definitely, the only other career that's quite the same, <laughs> not quite, but yeah, it's like our, it's, it's the seasons and just like how much they have to go out and train and then also then perform. Yeah, it's, that's a cool comparison. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you played at the stadium, right? The other, like, one of the stadiums? Yeah, yeah, just a couple weeks ago, I had the the honor and the privilege of playing the, the national anthem at the Seattle Mariners game, and that was really fun. I was nervous as hell. <laughs> <laughs> no, that was so cool. Yeah, if you haven't seen that video, you should check it out on um, Nathan's. It's on your YouTube and... Yeah, I posted a little short uh, reels of it. Yeah. So. Yeah. So go check that out. Talking about, you know, social media, being a full-time professional cellist in the Seattle Symphony, and how do you balance those two um, with content creation and everything? It's very difficult. Uh, I don't know if you, the listeners out there know this, but Grace and I took a, a YouTube class together um, where we really tried to, you know, understand the strategies and uh, the sort of game plan in which the professional content creators are really uh, going about their business and making uh, it a career. And it was a very humbling experience for me, at least. It was in, it was a lot of hard work. I think the the part that was uh, difficult for me is was the consistency in terms of creating content. Uh, for me, content creation has always been sort of a hobby of mine, and I've been fortunate enough that it's you know become a much bigger part of my life than simply a hobby at this point. But I think in some ways I still uh, treat it as such, and to really take it to that next step where you're creating all the time, um, it was it, it was it was difficult for me uh, because I think inherently as a creative you know, ideas come and go and learning how to create sometimes when the ideas aren't there, that was a big struggle. But I, I don't know, I'm curious, what was your experience like creating content? And, you know, I, I, I found it difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely hard. I think like after looking at how professionals like TJ does it all the time and really makes it her job. I was like, Oh my goodness. <laughs> I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. And you really can do it as a full-time job. And I think that intimidated me in some ways too. Like I was like, okay, so if I'm really serious about this one, I, it can be a job a career, but two, it's like, Whoa, <laughs> it's a lot of work. Um, yeah. Her pitch kit is amazing. Just understanding how to, um, which I really should link that. <laughs> Definitely. Yes. Shout out to TJ. TJ is amazing. Um, but it teaches you how to do negotiations and really in like the online world and space. Um, something I'm like, as my audience size is still pretty small, but I'm like, okay, someday I'll, we'll have to work on this. Yeah. But it's definitely, I still have reels that I created during that course that I need to release. <laughs> You got to post that. I need to post them. Yes. Just be posting. Always be posting. Always be posting. Yes. I have, they're all like, there's like three that are ready and I'm like, I need to post these. Yeah. Maybe just for some context for our listeners, um, social media is really based. Um, I guess the term for it nowadays is, is like algorithmic ranking or, 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 or such. Yeah. A lot of the things you're seeing on social media are getting pushed to your screen um, because they're, you know, trending or doing well according to an algorithm. And so uh, a lot of the focus nowadays from a creation standpoint is sort of really optimizing for that algorithm 
uh, which is, a, is is very interesting. There's a lot of you know strategies and techniques uh, in order to do that, but uh, it's um, it was so fascinating. It is, and and like even just now observing different platforms and how you interacting with the platform, what it responds to. I think a lot of people don't realize that if you just take time to observe, you can learn so much. Like how it's reacting to your usage will show like what type of content you get shown, especially on TikTok. And like, it's just crazy. TikTok is actually kind of scary sometimes. You're like, wait, I Googled that. Um, okay, why is this real? <laughs> like, show, I mean, TikTok showing up. <laughs> um, but then it's so addicting because then you get those that, you know, different content. And then even just like YouTube with their shorts are starting to be, at first I was getting all these random creators and I'm like, I don't follow this type of content at all. Like, why do you think I'm interested? And now it's starting to turn into more of like a better, like a better platform that personalized. I, yeah, it's more personalized. And which I just, I think it's just them updating things and figuring out how to reach people more through that. And then Reels is also, I feel like starting to do that as well, better like TikTok. Like TikTok is still, I don't know what they do over there, but I was like, whoa. It's kind of insane. <laughs> it's really insane. It's so addicting. I have to delete that app all the time. <laughs> don't delete it. <laughs> I mean, like I, I get, I download it again. It's my I social see. media, you know, like wow. boundaries, you know, delete those apps. That's you... interesting. What's your relationship like with social media, Grace? I would say like, um, I really love using it for making connections and networking and just like really that's can be the huge value is reaching people that you may never meet in your normal day to day, especially in our music world. Like it's tiny already, but like meeting people can be really hard. But like over COVID, I think a lot of people figured out, oh, we can connect over like social media or over, you know, just like just starting to meet people of mutual interest that you have, which has been super super awesome because I wouldn't have been able to like meet you <laughs> Yay! through social media. Um, so that's the awesome thing I love about it so much is connecting with like-minded creators or musicians across the globe. And then setting boundaries with it has been a big thing. So one thing that has been super helpful for me, cause I'm like, otherwise I could spend my whole day scrolling, but then I'm like, is this something else I need to deal with? Like, should I go do my laundry or <laughs> am I procrastinating something and I need to get some work done or send an email, you know, then um, one thing I've really only helps me, like I've done the time, you know, blocker on your phone, but you know, if I know my passcode, that doesn't work. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I just resort to the goal of fashion, deleting the app off my phone. Wow. I should try that. It actually, it helps because then you're like, I have to go to the app store now and re-download it. And like, then after you think about it. It's friction. Yeah. And you're like, you think about it for five seconds and you're like, nah, <laughs> you know, it's too much work. So I usually at a certain point in the day when I'm like done working, because I work essentially on social media now because I do some management for some people and I do content creation for myself. So I'm like always studying what other people are putting out there to like get ideas so I just delete it after a certain point in the day. <laughs> wow, that's interesting. I should be better about that. Like I got a little lazy after vacation. I was like, I'm going to be on, you know, but no. No, like, that's that's okay. That's like the that's best good. way. So then you're really like, you don't have the option quite as much. Like you scroll to that point on your phone, you know, with the habit. And then you're like, oh, it's not there. Okay, you know, <laughs> maybe I can go read a book. <laughs> that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh I'm not like, it's not my original thought. Like I got it from a social media manager or she like creates all this content all the time and does like Instagram as her like whole career and teaches people how to do it. And she admitted that she was like, I just delete it off my phone, like on the weekends or on. And I was like, whoa. And she has like a really successful Instagram. So I was like, you know what? Interesting. It doesn't harm anything. <laughs> it helps me <laughs> stay more sane. So. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that makes a lot of sense. I think for, uh, for someone like you, that's doing more and more work into it. I think it's important to set those boundaries between it because, you know, we use it as on our personal side, but now you're also using it from a business side too. And that can, you don't, you don't want it to take over your life 
uh, either. So I think that's a good game plan. Yeah. So if you struggle with social media at all, just delete it off oh your boy. phone. <laughs> like I least, must have it. <laughs> at least certain times in the day. And then, you know, you can re-download it the next day, like when your work starts or whatever, you know. Sure. So. Someone should create an app where it just does that. Just deletes it. Like a one touch delete. It. Well, maybe they shouldn't because that's the whole point. <laughs> <laughs> you you can do it yourself. <laughs> I know. I'm so lazy. <laughs> yeah, but that is the point that it's hard to get back on it. So. Right, right, right. So actually, I have a question for you about um, learning all of that stuff from TJ and like negotiations and stuff. How have you been navigating that now? with your career is there any recommendations for others who are starting to you know with their content monetize it that's a very good question um i think what i like about social media the most is that it allows one to really think about your sort of persona um it's a it's a lesson in sort of branding and marketing but at the same time uh so, so, so it, when one thinks about how to enter in social media, I think one needs to have a fairly clear vision of what, what part of themselves they really enjoy sharing with others online. And then having, um, I guess, finding the intersections between branding oneself and what you do as a career I think it's important not it's important to have both i guess what i'm saying is sometimes i see folks that are so on the business side of who they are online that something feels sort of disingenuous about that but at the same time uh you know there are people who don't like that side at all and perhaps there's more room for growth uh in terms of their brand and their persona if they were to have a little bit more of that. Uh, it's a very difficult thing to balance, but sort of my personal goal has been to, yes, you know, I want to create great content that is going to do well, but at the same time, I still want it to be very much who I am. And learning to sort of set a boundary for myself in terms of what kind of content I post that I feel doesn't really uh, balance well between those two points has been really important in terms of sort of my mental health on social media. I think that's sort of a big takeaway that I've learned over the years. And maybe that's not really where people are at their stage in the game and they just want to create more content. And I say, go for it, you know, create lots of content and you know, experiment around. The, the great thing about modern day social media is it doesn't really punish you for bad content. It, you know, it just only rewards the good content. So you shouldn't be afraid of making mistakes. I think getting started is the hardest thing and just being brave enough to post. Um, and you'll figure out that sort of system workflow and system for yourself <laughs> as you do it more but you just have to do it in order to figure it out and so i've i've sort of figured out what i feel comfortable with in terms of how i want social media to be a part of my life uh, but i encourage others to continue to explore it's so true just like go out and create and i love how you put the the way of saying that there is really no bad content like it really only rewards good content like and then you'll find out what the good content is but then don't overthink the process just put it out there as i should put out these reels and shorts that i created a while ago come on yeah, like just post some grace <laughs> post it so yeah i think that's something that we can get in our head about a lot of it and it's just like just put it out there i do it all the time yep same I do it all the time. It's a lot easier said than done. I totally agree. So this has been a really awesome conversation. Just like just all these different topics, like being a professional musician, social media, career development, all of that. Um, 
I guess like I have a few rapid fire questions at the end. So ready? (laughs) I love asking this question about like, what is your favorite form of music? Classical music or otherwise? Chamber music. Working with others in in music is so important. You learn so much. You feed off of others. Uh, Yeah. It's the way you grow. So chamber music for me. Chamber music is my favorite too. (laughs) It really is like you learn so much by playing with another musician. It's like one of the best ways to learn over lessons sometimes. (laughs) Um, Or just the comments that your chamber buddies make, then you're like, oh, great. Okay. (laughs) They're like, what are you doing with your bow distribution? And then you're like, okay, I will go practice. (laughs) A a sharp uh, chamber colleagues uh, if they say that <laughs> that's good though but yeah maybe maybe don't say something like that <laughs> people skills it teaches you people it skills. does it really does chamber music is just like the one-on-one to how to work with other musicians um what's your favorite composer oh man this is a toughie um i mean i've always loved Brahms chamber music and Beethoven symphonies. Mm. Uh, they're sort of great foundational roots of classical music. Um, a bit tried and true, perhaps not now. Currently, I love electronic music. I think it's a world that um, explores literally every part of the audio spectrum that uh, you know we try and create acoustically but some but isn't necessarily possible i think electronic music is gonna make a lot of further leaps and bounds yeah Uh, so that's that's sort of interesting to me on that note since you're talking about um like electronic music and stuff like that is there a favorite like tool organization or software that you really enjoy using i guess logic pro is um fascinating piece of software where it really dissects music into really a different type of subdivision that we don't think about when we're performing um, and allows you to analyze and and shape music in a very specific way i i've always loved audio editing so i guess logic pro is fascinating yeah no that software is daunting to me but it is so cool (laughs) it is cool (laughs) Learning it, still learning it. Good, oh my goodness. good. it's important too. <laughs> yeah, I know it is. Do you have like an actionable tip for the audience today? When you have a great practice session, I want you to write down exactly what you did, how long you did each thing. No, 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 I take that back. Not how long you did each thing, but what you accomplished because of those actions and see if you can repeat it because I think developing your workflow is going to be an important part of getting to the next step and, and and getting a consistent result in the things that you do. So the first act of observation, I think, is very important. I think that would be a very interesting exercise to do. And I think I'm going to do it because I don't think I've ever done it formally. That's a great idea. Just like trying to figure out because those practice sessions, you're like, how can I repeat this feeling? This like, you know, just feeling like good about the work I created. And, and just, I want it to be extremely clear and specific. I don't want you to go into the practice room with a set goal. I want you to keep practicing. Uh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, don't, I want it to be from, uh, with, uh, hindsight is 2020. I want you to come from, from it after you've done it. Cause I don't want to interrupt the exploratory process when you're in it. And then after you've observed it, then you can use those techniques to adjust the next practice session because I don't know. Well, I, yeah, I don't no, know what it, I'm saying. it makes sense because then if you take that, what you've observed and try to use it again in your next practice session to see if that system then creates the successful practice. Yes, yes. Constantly iterative. Yeah, no, that's a really good point because I think I have successful practice sessions and I'm like, what did I do to create this? Think about what you did. Write it down. And then remind yourself the next day. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, well, where can people find you online? Oh. Um, or in, or in real can... life. 
Well, here's my address. It is no, I'm just <laughs> not your address. He does play professionally in the Seattle Symphony, so if you I'll be in Seattle him. somewhere. You can come and find me. No, um, um, but if you want to see the my... symphony, he'll be there. <laughs> yes, please come visit us at the Seattle Symphony. Uh, our season is opening up back again to public audiences next season. So yes, yeah, so uh, come find me at the Seattle Symphony, and you can also find me on all social media platforms at Nathan Chancello. C-E-L-L-O, just in case you don't know how to spell it. And uh, you can find me on my website at NathanChan.com. Yeah, no, it's great having you on the show today, Nathan. Thank you so much, Grace. This was fun. Yeah, so find him online somewhere. It's a great time watching his content. So thanks for being here. Thank you, Grace, for having me. Thanks for listening to the Before the Stage podcast. I hope that you enjoyed the show today. Don't miss an episode and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you have any questions or topics for Before the Stage, feel free to write me at beforethestage at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time on the show. Hey there, do you run a podcast? Well, here is a podcast secret you might like. The Podcast Editors. This team of editors helped before this stage create this quality content for you. It's a vital part of the podcast team that keeps the show going. If you need help with editing or want one last thing to do with managing a podcast, contact the Podcast Editors today. Check out their services at thepodcasteditors.net. Also, it will be linked down in the show notes. Thanks for listening.